You're listening to the Country Bible Church Sermon Cast. This sermon, titled Our Identity, was presented by Andrew Anderson on September 17th, 2017. Well, good morning, church. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Andrew, and I'm one of the pastors here. I'm glad you're here. Uh, we're kicking off a brand new series today entitled At My Church, where over the next several weeks, we're going to explore together, we're going to journey with one another to really come to understand why we at this church exist and some of the fundamental DNA that makes us tick. This is the most exciting time to be a part of this church that I could think of. It is an incredible opportunity for us to learn together, grow together, and do life and ministry together. And I'm excited as much to preach as I am for you to be a part of this with us as we do life and ministry together. Amen? Amen. I want to invite you right now to grab your Bibles and turn to the book of John chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. One of our ushers would be glad to bring you one. Simply raise your hand and the ushers will bring you a Bible. These Bibles are a gift to you from us. You keep them, write your name in them, and just invite you to bring them with you each week as you track along and follow along. It's a great place to take notes and write down questions and continue to use throughout your weeks as you study and get to learn and grow together in our community. We'll be in John chapter 4 today. This week, I was thinking about our series. I was thinking about our church. I was thinking about what the church is about and what we're called to. And one of the things that has become apparent to me over the last 20 years of ministry and 39 years of life, specifically in my generation and the younger generation, the millennials, is that nobody wants to walk into a church where they've got to guess what the church is about, look for clues to try to figure it out, and try to stumble their way through until they can understand it. And we don't want that to be the case here at our church either. So what we've done is over the last 10 months, our leadership team and our staff have spent a lot of time praying, fasting, seeking the Lord, searching his scriptures. And what we've done is we have identified what we believe to be the reason we exist as a church. Now, I want to let you know up front that this is not a, a sermon series on our mission or our vision because we believe that collectively, Jesus has already given us a mission statement and a vision statement. There was a big movement in the late 90s and early 2000s where churches were really hot on writing mission statements and vision statements and trying to reinvent the wheel to be catchy and relevant in their context and culture. And that's okay. I was a part of that. I did that in more than one church. But what I realized as I get further along in my own experience in ministry is that we don't need to write a mission or vision statement because Jesus did that for us. In Matthew 22, he says, go make, or me, he says, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And in Matthew 28, he says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is the vision and the mission for the capital C church. If you are a part of the body of Christ as a believer, every church all over every nation, tribe, and tongue is responsible to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves, and to go and make disciples. That is our mission and vision. That said, I believe that God has given each church in their own context a unique opportunity to live that out. And that's what this is. Today, we're going to focus on our existence and our identity. Why we are here, why we are doing what we're doing and where we're headed. And then what you're going to hear toward the end is where we're going to be going over the next several weeks. There's a movement right now amongst dating couples. 
and young college-age kids. They do it for fun. You can find it on Groupon. You can go to, uh, I even saw it, I was in, I, I want to say I was in Kansas City with my son at one point, and we were in the mall, and they had a mall front, or like a store in the mall, where you could do this. But they're called mystery rooms. And if you're unfamiliar with what a mystery room is, let me sum it up this way. You pay money to someone to lock you in a room and frustrate the living daylights out of you. (laughs) What it is, is it would be a setup similar to what you see here represented on the stage. And you walk in, they give you an initial clue, they lock you in the room, usually with a group of people, and you read the first clue, and then what you have to do is systematically together begin to navigate your way through the room, like this office setup where you'd have to look underneath the chair and check underneath the desk and start pulling out drawers and fumbling through papers to try to find out what the clue is, and you're looking under lampstands, and you're checking computers, and you're going all over, and then all of a sudden, you'll come across the next clue, which will give you a clue, And it will give you a set of instructions on how to keep looking. And in the end, the goal is, within the time frame allotted, you will find a key, and that key will give you access to the door that you can unlock, open up, and walk out. Well, that's fun for dating couples. (laughs) And it's fun for groups of people to go out on, on dates with their friends and interact with others. I don't know. Call me crazy. But I don't think that should be anyone's experience when they come to church. I don't want anybody to drive on our campus, first of all, having to try to figure out where we are or what they should wear when they get here or what they're going to hear or what they're going to see or what they're going to smell or what they're going to taste or what it's going to feel like. And then when they come in, I certainly don't want them to come through the front doors and have to stumble their way around looking for clues to identify who we are as a church what we're about, what are the main things, what are the things that we stand for, that, that, that define us, what do we believe, and what do we care about, and what are we doing? Church, I don't think you want that either. I think you want a church that makes sense, a mission and vision that God has given us, but within the context of an existence and an identity that is easily identifiable, reproducible, and that we can explain to our friends. We want to be a relevant church in our community that makes sense where people can come in and understand quickly how they can get plugged in. That's why we have a connections team. We want to take the guesswork of how to get connected to the church, how to get connected to God, and how to get connected to one another. And so what you're going to learn today is really the fundamental reason that we exist as a church. You're going to hear our existence statement today, our identity statement. Before we do that, we're going to read a story from Jesus. A story of people longing for identity, a story of intrigue, a story of what some thought were mysterious clues, a story of identity, a story of relevance, a story of relationships, a story of religion, and you're going to see in the end, hopefully, uh, that it all ties together. Now let's invite the Holy Spirit to come and just, just meet us where we're at and take us where he wants us to go. Would you, would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, that is our prayer, that you meet us right where we're at, but don't leave us here. We invite your presence to change our hearts. We invite you into our circumstances and our situations. We invite you as we read your scripture to come alive. We know that your word is active and alive and that it can still be written today in our hearts. And so my prayer is that as we study, as we learn, as we grow, that these words would jump off, the, they would literally leap off the pages and into our hearts, that you would solidify them in our minds and our hearts, that we would become a movement that changes 
a community, and a nation, and a world. Now may the words of my mouth, every one of them, Lord, and may the meditations of our hearts, the words that we hear and how we receive them, be found holy and pleasing, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. I want, to, I want to tell you, we're going to be in John chapter 4 today, and I want you to get your Bibles open and ready. We're going to study this together, and if you are new to our church, this is, I want to take the guesswork out, and I want to explain to you a little bit of how I teach. What we'll do is we'll read a collection of words, some sentences together, and then we'll stop periodically and we'll, we'll break it apart. We'll look at it contextually and, and help us understand relevance, how it applies today, and, and, and we'll go from there. So we're going to do that here in a minute. But as we do, I want to kind of pre, uh, pre-set the stage for us of, of what's taking place. Prior to the story that we're about to read, Jesus' ministry has begun. And it's really starting a, a, a groundswell. Word is beginning to travel about Jesus, this mystery of who he is, his ministry, his teachings. And people are coming out of the woodworks to see who Jesus is. You've got religious leaders that are coming out to refute what Jesus is about and what he's saying. You have got it, lawyers and intellectuals that are there to learn and to argue. You have got people who are desperate for the truth, longing for the Messiah that are coming. You've got the marginalized who have been forgotten by society that just want to identify with something or someone. They want to belong. And then you've got a group, a hodgepodge group of disciples that have been called by Jesus personally, individually into the ministry. So this word is spreading and Jesus in some circles is becoming famous while in other circles he's becoming infamous. But throughout the known world at this time, the one thing in common is that he's growing throughout the regions and it continues to, to grow. There's one individual in John chapter 3 that wants to know Jesus and wants to hear about his teaching. His name is Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, which means he is a leader of religious law. Nicodemus is a righteous man and he, he, he means well, he's well-intentioned. But because of his reputation as a religious leader, as a Pharisee, he had to come in the shield of the night, in the hours of darkness, to encounter Jesus because he was afraid of his reputation. He wanted to protect his reputation and the perception that others might have of him for going to see Jesus. Nicodemus comes at night and he has this interesting dialogue with Jesus. And he says, tell me, teacher, about this eternal life. And they have this conversation that turns into a conversation about childbearing. And Nicodemus says, well, what do you mean? Jesus, you said I need to be born again. But how is it possible that a man can be reborn, that he can be of his mother's womb and born again? That makes no sense. He's looking for clues. And he's trying from one conversation, one part of the sentence to the next, for another clue. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says, you're a smart man. You're a religious leader. And how is it? That even as a religious leader, you can't understand these simple things that I'm sharing with you. How can you expect to understand the truths of heaven? Now, juxtaposed to the righteous religious man, literally on the flip side of the coin, we see a woman that we're going to read about here in a moment. Many of you are going to be very familiar with the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. But what I want you to know is that Jesus plays no favorites that there is no race or gender when it comes to Jesus' gospel. The message of the good news, that Jesus meets us where we're at and he speaks into our situations. And so 
In one moment, we see him having this incredible dialogue with the religious leader who's considered righteous. And then on the very next page, we see Jesus meeting an incredibly sinful woman, distraught, broken, outcast, forbidden to be a part of her community. And he takes the same gospel message to her. The gospel is consistent. It doesn't change. Do you see that? Regardless of our circumstances, our surroundings, our experiences, our exposures, our religion, our backgrounds, our race, our ethnicity, our gender, our age, one thing remains the same for every nation, tribe, and tongue, and that is that the gospel is consistent and does not change. In John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Although Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. How did Jesus know that there was this conversation about him? Because word was beginning to spread. Because he had just had a conversation with Nicodemus. And so now there are all kinds of preconceived ideas based on personal prejudices about Jesus and his ministry. You see, what happens in religion is that we as individuals, we superimpose our own expectations on God. And we expect Jesus to be made in our image and not the image of God. Do you see that? Do you see what religion does? What religion does is religion teaches us to make God in our image rather than celebrating the fact that we were made in the very image of God. These individuals are hearing about Jesus and they begin to superimpose their own prejudices. Jesus hears this and their argument, their complaint, is that Jesus is what? That he's baptizing but it wasn't really Jesus who was baptizing, it was his disciples. So not only are they superimposing their own prejudices, but they're false. They're wrong. They're superimposing things that are not accurate or true. They're completely irrelevant. Instead of celebrating that people are declaring publicly a commitment to, to their faith, they're griping about the fact that Jesus, like John the baptizer, is baptizing. And John makes note that it wasn't Jesus who baptized. It was disciples. People had got it backwards. They were more concerned about their prejudices than they were about getting the facts straight. In religion and in churches... I'm concerned about people who are more concerned about their religion and getting their, their, their stories across rather than getting the facts straight. And Jesus hears this and he leaves. He leaves from Jerusalem and he heads towards Galilee. In verse 4, the Bible says that Jesus had to go through Samaria on the way. And we're going to come back to this in a moment. I'm actually going to show a map to you and help us understand contextually what's going on. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. This is all the way back to Genesis uh, chapter 27. Jacob's son was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. I want to stop for a moment, and I want to highlight something that John points out. If we're reading this in the narrative, it's easy for us to skip over uh, and looking for the plot. But if we stop for a moment and slow down to look at this from the narrative and realize what's going on, what John has just done is he has overstated that Jesus is the Messiah, but there's some undertones that he is entirely human. Why is that important? Why, 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 do, you, why do you suppose it's important that we understand that he's entirely God, but he was also entirely human? Well, I believe that what we see consistent throughout Scripture is that it's important for us to understand that Jesus, though God, though sovereign, was entirely human, 
which means that he had emotions like we have emotions, and he had physical needs like we have physical needs. So John points out here that Jesus, in his physical being, had a need to sit by a well and to nourish his body. He needed water to replenish himself from this long walk. Now, a day's journey, and let me explain where from Jerusalem to Samaria, what they're doing. There's about 70 miles that separates Jerusalem to Samaria. In traditional form, it's understood that a person with a pack mule and traveling in a group could travel about three miles an hour and would travel, according to religious customs, no more than eight hours a day. So let's assume that they're traveling about 24 miles in a day. 70 miles would take right around three days to make this journey. This is a long, treacherous journey. There would have been, uh, a, 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 it would have been dry, arid country. And so the fact that John points out that Jesus sat at the well for a drink helps us to know that when we're going through physical needs, our Jesus knows what that looks like. And then he goes on and he says in verse 7, Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please, give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. Another example of Jesus' physical needs and how he relates to us. Verse 9, the woman was surprised. I would love to have you circle or highlight or however you need to, to draw attention to that word surprised for your own benefit. Would you remember that word surprised? We're going to find out that she's surprised for three reasons. The woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. And she said to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? So three things that we need to talk about, why she's surprised. Let me show you this map and explain a little bit of the context and the culture. This map is of Asia Minor during the time that Jesus and this Samaritan woman are having a conversation. This is a map where you can see in the bottom two-thirds, Judea. Above Judea is Jerusalem. That's where Jesus starts his journey. That's where Nicodemus comes and they have this conversation. Above Jerusalem, straight north, is Samaria. You can see there in Samaria where it says Sikar. That is where Shechem is and that is where he is having this conversation with this woman, the Samaritan woman. Above Samaria is Galilee. About the top two-thirds of the map, you see the region of Galilee. And that is where Jesus is attempting to go to take the gospel, to take the message. There are three ways that people would go from Jerusalem to get to Galilee. We understand from basic math the principle that the fastest way to anywhere is a straight line. The fastest way between two points is a straight line. The problem with that, and we'll see in a moment, was there are two other roads that would have been traveled. One was called the Coastal Highway, which means that they would have started from Jerusalem. They would have headed straight west up through Joppa and around. They would have traveled the coastline all the way up to Mount Carmel and then back into Galilee. The reason that they would have done that, I'll explain in a moment, but that would have added four days to their journey. So what was a three-day journey would now have turned into approximately seven days to get to Galilee. The other alternative route that you could take was what is known as the King's Highway. And what they would have done is they would have started at Jerusalem. They would have gone over and down and around the Dead Sea, up through Perea, around the Capolis, over by the Sea of Galilee, and into Galilee that way. That also, because of the mountainous terrain and the, 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 the added mileage, would have added about four more days to the journey, making a three days journey seven days. 
So why would there be two alternate routes instead of going from Jerusalem into Galilee through Samaria? Church, I'm glad you asked. In, uh, in, 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 prior to this, there was a war and there was a division between the northern and the southern kingdoms. Assyria came in and when Assyria came in, there were a bunch of exiles that came in. Now what happens is Jewish men begin to marry people in Samaria. They were forbidden from marrying outside of their own race. So this is really a story of racism. This is a story of racism because Samaritans were known as a half-breed of people. They were half-Jew and they were half-unclean or unpure. Now, Samaritans were also considered to be unpure, unclean people. What would happen then is if you were a God-fearing Jew, a religious person, you would, by way of your religion and your righteousness, have nothing to do with any unclean person. And we'll talk here in just a moment about the, the rituals and, 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 and sacrificial stuff that happened, had to happen. But what would happen then, let me explain how severe this was. If a Jewish individual, knowingly or unknowingly, stepped into Samaritan territory, once they identified what they had done, you would have seen this individual, and we see this also in Paul's epistle, where he tells the church, take the gospel, present it, and if they don't receive you, take your sandals off, wipe the dust from your feet, and move on from that community. This is a direct correlation to what I'm about to explain was prevalent in this community. If a Jewish individual would step into Samaria, knowingly or unknowingly, once they found out, what they would do is they would kneel down, they would take off the leather straps surrounding their sandals. They would take off their sandals, beat the dust or the sand off of their sandals. They would step onto pure ground, and they would then re-sandal themselves. This was symbolic of doing away with anything to do with you unclean people, you half-breed people. And so these Jews then would go out of their way adding four days to their trip, either way you look at it, to get to the same place. Jesus does something very unique, very taboo. He goes straight to the heart of Samaria. And he meets this woman right where she's at. He doesn't expect her to come to him. He finds her and meets her where he's at, or where she's at, and speaks to her situation. So this woman is surprised why is she surprised? Well, number one, she readily identifies that Jesus is a Jew because of the way he's dressed, because of the way he carries himself, because of cultural uh, identifiers or markers. She can identify that he's a Jew. So she's shocked. She's surprised. The second thing we see is that she's surprised that Jesus is there alone and that she's talking to him or that he's talking to her because it was very, very taboo for any man to talk to any woman without others around, especially a woman's husband or a man's wife. It was not acceptable. It was not okay. And so she is shocked here that, that this is taking place and that he's there for a drink. She's shocked that he doesn't have anything to draw from the well from. You would not go to a well that was well over 100 feet deep to draw water without a rope and a bucket to draw from. So let's look at this story together and see what happens. In her surprise... Jesus says, please, woman, give me a drink. And she's surprised. She calls out the obvious. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. And you're asking me for a drink. What are you doing here? Why are you talking to a woman? And why didn't you bring anything to draw from the well? In verse 10, we read, Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. 
Now church, when I first read this, if you look at this without having the full context or the benefit of hindsight as we do from reading these stories for years and years, if you look at this on the surface, it almost seems cryptic if you're this woman. You're standing there, you're at the well, and, and, and Jesus is talking about, if you knew who I was, I would give you a, a different kind of water. I would give you a living water. It almost seems like a clue. What is it you really want? But the, the reason that it seems like a clue is because she can't see past her circumstances into her salvation. She can't see past the current situation that she finds herself in, which I'll elaborate on here in just a moment, to her salvation. Jesus was not being cryptic. If you look all the way back into the Old Testament, water and the Spirit go hand in hand. The Spirit of God and water. From Genesis chapter 1, the first six verses talk about the creation of the world and that the Holy Spirit was over the water. And then throughout Genesis and throughout the Old Testament, we see how God provides for his people through water. In desolate situations, in broken situations, there's a, a rock, there's the Israelites, there's a, there's, there's, there's a drought. The people are complaining, which the Israelites were really, really good at doing. And Moses goes to God and says, what do you want me to do? He says, strike the rock and I'll give him water. Happens again. Goes and strikes the rock. He, he provides nourishment. He provides uh, quenching for the thirst through miraculous ways. But this woman isn't interested in history or heritage. She can't see past her circumstances. And it begs the question, even if Jesus were present in front of us, giving us the obvious, not speaking to us in cryptic language or with clues, would we be able to see Jesus in our salvation over our, over our situation? So, verse 11. I want you to highlight a few words, okay? She says, but sir... So you're going to want to circle that word, sir. You don't have a rope or a bucket. Here's part of her surprise, she said. And this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides that, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? How often do we superimpose on God our religious expectations and miss his glory. How often do we have preconceived ideas from generation to generation that we learn from our ancestors or that we learn through religion classes or catechism or through uh, confirmation? And I'm not, I, church, hear me say this loud and clear. This is not about any denomination or other religion. I am not speaking ill of any other church. What I am suggesting is that there seems to be a pattern that I've discovered in ministry of people, when I ask them about their salvation experience, they are able to explain their religion, but very rarely are they able to identify their relationship with Jesus. They superimpose what they learned in religion class. And it keeps them from encountering the fullness of a relationship with Jesus. And that's exactly what this woman is doing. And she's going to do it here again in a moment. He says in verse... Uh, 11, okay, going in verse 12. And besides, do you have, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob? This is my history, verse 13. Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water that I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. 
If we thought for even a moment that Jesus was speaking in cryptic language or was just dropping clues, we can know right here and now that he just spoke in plain English. Well, Arabic, but he, he spoke in plain English for us now in, in this translation to understand what he is about, what he's talking about, what he has to offer. Eternal life. Listen to this woman's reply. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. We need to look at two parts of her response. Please, sir, it's a, sin, it's a simple sign of desperation. There's a desperate call, a cry, a plea on her part. She says, please, sir, give me this living water so that I will never be thirsty again and so that I don't have to come here again. Two things that we need to understand about what's going on. When she says, so that I will never be thirsty again, this is a woman who we will learn here in just a moment that had gone from well after well after well that the world has to offer that has left her empty and broken. She didn't have a rope long enough or a bucket wide enough to pull up the water that was absent from the well to fill the God-sized void in her heart. And much like this woman, I encounter far too many people that go from the world's well after the world's well after the world's well looking for fulfillment, looking to quench this innate desire that God has placed in our heart that can only be filled by him with cheap imitations that this world has to offer. And what I've understood about the church over the years of being involved in it and loving the bride of Christ is that people, when they do come to church, it's usually into their 30s unless they come as a child because their parents made them. And when they come, it's because they are desperate. And it, when they come, it's because they are looking for something to fill a quench that this world has not been able to fill. They come in with the same sense of urgency. Please, sir, give me something more. Give me sustenance. Give me this living water. And notice the word picture Jesus uses. We can't dismiss this. He says, fresh, bubbling water that you will never run out of. This is in Shechem, dry, arid, and there is no running water in this community. The only water outside of what was found in the well would have been water that had pooled together in an area that would have been lukewarm and it would have been filled with bacteria and it would have been good for absolutely nothing. You could use that water for nothing. So when he, she hears this description of fresh, bubbling life, it captivates not only her heart, but it captures her mind and it takes her to a place of fulfillment. How many of us have gone the world, searching the world over for one cheap imitation after the next, one broken relationship after the next, one bad investment after the next, one beer bottle after the next, one addiction after the next, looking for fulfillment and we feel left empty and you came into the church saying, please, sir, show me something real, something tangible, something fresh for my soul that will quench what is going on inside of me that I don't even know that I can articulate. Amen. You see, those are the people that I believe we're called to minister to and reach as a church. I am not interested in a church where we open the doors up and fill them full of Nicodemuses. 
I'm not interested in sheep swapping with any other churches in our community. I'm not interested in people coming here with their religious rules and regulations and trying to superimpose on our church what they think we should be doing based on their own religion and based on their own experiences and their own rhetoric. I am interested in being a living well of water of the Holy Spirit that will quench a God-sized void in our lives that can only be filled by Him. This woman is desperate. And notice she says on the second part, she says, and I won't have to come here to get water. Why would she say that? Before this, I read that Jesus stopped at this well at noontime. I want to talk to you about some cultural things, okay, that we need to understand. In this culture and context, in this community, women would come to the well in a community early in the morning before the sun was really up and in the evening as the sun was setting. They would come as a community for a couple of reasons. Number one, they would come before the sun was at its brightest at 12 to 1 o'clock to avoid the heat of the day. Number two, they would come as a community because they would work together in almost what you and I would identify as a yoke for horse or for oxen. They would have lumber across their back with hooks that they would attach buckets to and drape a rope over that they would use to then pull water from the well, hook on, do again another bucket, and then they would work. And so if if it got heavy, they could help each other. They could work with each other to get the water back to their communities so that it was good for something. Why was this woman here in the heat of the day all by herself with no one? What we're going to learn here in just a moment are the choices that she made that according to society standards kept her from community. And so she's desperate for a change She doesn't want to go through the motions anymore. She's tired of coming to the well by herself. She's desperate for community. She's desperate for a healthy relationship. She's desperate for dialogue. She's desperate to be a part of a women's group that can love her and support her and do life in ministry with her. She's tired of going to the same old well that she has to draw from that will ultimately leave her longing for more. So she cries out, please, sir, show me where I can get this living water so I can be forever filled and so that I don't have to come back here. How many of us, if we're honest in our brokenness, despise our brokenness, but it's all we know? Amen. I've never met a man who's proud of his addiction to pornography. I've never met a couple that brag about extramarital affairs in their marriage. I've never met an investor who is so grateful and proud that he lost everything because of bad investments. What I have met and the people that I've encountered and coached through Scripture are those that have found themselves broken and lost and desperate and hurting and wanting to get out of their addictions and wanting to get out of their bad relationships and wanting more, but it's all they've ever come to know. And if somebody would just meet them where they were at, speak into their situation instead of about their situation, step into their situation instead of around or over their situation, they would want to get out of there. They are tired of living the same old, broken lives. This woman is tired of living the same old broken life and she's desperate. Church, I want to tell you, we have a community full of this woman. We have a community full. We have a high school full. Let me tell you something I didn't get to tell you two weeks ago, but I want to tell you, two weeks ago at our youth group, we had well over 100 kids. 
And of the 100 kids that were here, almost half of them had been here for the first time, had never been here. We had 32 students give their lives to Jesus for the first time at youth group. 32. Now listen, listen, listen. I'm not just throwing numbers out. These aren't just random people. Not only did these students raise their hands in front of their peers, they came to the altar with our volunteer staff member and our, and our youth staff, and they came forward. Not only did they come forward, their friends, many of them came with them, and then our staff talked with every single student by name, individually, to assess the situation and the commitment they were making and to pray with them. We know like we know like we know that 32 students made a first-time commitment to Jesus as Lord of their lives. These are students that are the Samaritan woman. They were tired of being in their broken situation in their schools. Two weeks ago, we had five adults in our three services come to Jesus for the first time because they were tired of going through the same thing. They know that there has to be more to this and they're tired of empty imitations and cheap lies. I am the Samaritan woman. There was a time in my life where I had gone from one empty well and cheap imitation after the next, longing for the next fix that would never fill me. And it was my parents who took me, met me where I was at, spoke into my situation and walked into my situation, introduced me to the living water that changed my life forever, which is why I'm standing here today. Our community is riddled full of far too many Samaritan women that need Jesus. And you and I, and our church, we are the hope of our community today. Because we have the message that changes everything. Not a systematic rules and regulations of religion, but a right relationship that will leave them transformed and changed for all eternity. Jesus seems to change the conversation, but I want to talk about this for a moment. He says, go and get your husband, Jesus told her. Listen to her response. I don't have a husband. The woman replied, and Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you've had five, and, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. While we look at this, and it seems like we just changed episodes. It seems like the scene just changed. It hasn't. The backdrop hasn't changed. There's been no break. They haven't gone to commercial. Be back in two minutes. It was none of that. It is literally the same thing. And what Jesus is doing is he's speaking into her life, not about her life. He's speaking into her life, and he's identifying for her, look, you've been going to men to fill this void in your life, but what you need is the Messiah. Let's see what happens. Let's see her response. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. Highlight the word prophet, please. We're going to talk about that in a moment. So tell me, as a prophet, why is it you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship? While we Samaritans claim it's here on Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshipped. What she is more concerned about is her situation and her religion rather than her salvation and a relationship with Jesus. She is more worried about getting it right. That is why most people will never darken the doors of a church is because they don't think they'll ever get it right. They don't believe they'll ever be good enough. Well, church, let me tell you, you will never be good enough. And you know what? That's okay because God is enough. You don't 
have to be good enough as long as God is enough. So she sits there with Jesus. She says, well, tell me, why do you Jews insist you have to worship down there while we worship up here? And you guys sing hymns, and we sing praise songs, and you guys wear robes, and we wear modern clothes, and you guys sit in pews, and we sit in chairs. And you guys, like, she wants to sit there and argue religion. She wants to argue what she's always known She's known no better. Jesus wasn't condemning her for her extramarital affairs. Jesus wasn't condemning her for her divorces. He wasn't condemning her for her broken relationships. What he was doing was calling to her in the midst of her brokenness and saying, look, I know you need this living water because you've tried far too long in far too many other ways to fill this and it hasn't worked. But instead of addressing the situation and the circumstances, she wants to turn to religion. She wants to justify. She wants to change course. It wasn't Jesus who changed directions. It was this woman. And in her mind, as Jesus is saying, you're right, you're not married to the man you're living with right now and you've been married for, she's sitting in her mind trying to figure out what she can do to make it better. Do you see that? Well, you guys worship down there. We worship up here. You do it that way. We do it. It is not about the process. It is about the person. Church, I love you enough to tell you, and I'm going to say it very, very, very gently. I've said it very impassioned in the past. I don't care about the bricks and mortar of this building. This is not the church. You are the church. We will not consume our time or our thoughts arguing with anyone in our church or outside of our church that wants to have an opinion about us about how we do what we feel God's calling us to do. I'm not going to argue religion. I will demonstrate a relationship. That should be our attitude. Don't let me focus on religion. Keep me all about the relationship. That needs an amen. That needs an amen. That's good. <laughs> Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. You got this whole thing figured out. And Jesus replied, verse 21, believe me, dear woman, when do you think the last time this prostitute, I mean, that's really what she was in society. She was an outcast. I didn't really specify this earlier, but I want to tell you now that the reason she's going at 12 o'clock is she's literally been excommunicated from her community. She is an outcast. She's not welcome among her own people. She goes at the heat of the day so that she avoids human interaction because of what people will think about her or say about her. She's not welcome in her own home. When do you think the last time she heard a kind word like, dear woman was. Sometimes people don't need to hear about our religion. They just need to hear that we care about them. In fact, I'd argue not sometimes, all the time. This woman heard this term of endearment from Jesus. Dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter, when your religion will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him for salvation comes through the Jews. He's not saying that he's better than her. He's agreeing with her. He's saying, you're right. I understand. You understand. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when true worshipers, authentic worshipers, honorable worshipers, 
relevant worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, led by the Spirit, driven by the Spirit, honoring the Spirit, and in truth, in authenticity, the Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, not superimposing our religion on God to make him into our image, but becoming the very image of God that he created us to be and living it as a lifestyle. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. He just dropped some truth on this woman that is going to fundamentally and radically change her life. Listen to this. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming. From generation to generation, my religion has said so. The one who is called Christ. When he comes, he's going to explain everything to us. She is so caught up in her religion that she doesn't see Jesus for who he is. That's the danger with religion, church, is we get caught up in what we want it to be and we cannot see Jesus for who he is. That's why I am so adamantly opposed against religion. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. This phrase is very familiar, isn't it? Genesis chapter, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 3. When Moses is having an encounter with God through the form of a burning bush, and God says, you're going to go to Egypt, you're going to go to Pharaoh, you're going to go to the oppressed people, to the Egyptians, and you're going to lead them out. And Moses says, well, okay, who should I tell him sent me? And God says, I am that I am. This woman would have known that story. Jesus brings it full circle for her. You see how Jesus meets her in her circumstances and speaks into her life? There was no mystery, was there? She was convoluting things because of her own experiences and expectations. Jesus wasn't making it complicated. And he says right here for the whole world to hear, I am the Messiah. Just then the disciples come back. Now we see a change of scenery. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask. I love that John included that in the gospel. They were cowards. They all wanted to talk about Jesus and wanted to gossip about the situation, but none of them had the nerve to ask Jesus, Jesus, what you doing? Why are you talking to her? The woman left her jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone. The woman left her jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone. The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone. The woman left her personal property that gave her the ability to draw nourishment by way of water at the well, not concerned about whether it would be there when she returned, not concerned whether somebody would take it and steal it, not concerned whether somebody would use it or abuse it. The woman, after encountering Jesus and identifying him as the Messiah, her life is so radically transformed and changed that she leaves her life source at the well and she runs back not just home she runs back to a community that has ostracized her where she is marginalized where she has been excommunicated where they have cut ties and broken relationships a community that will not have anything to do with her this is a community culturally that when somebody was considered unclean when they were unpure whether they had an open wound or a discharge or they had touched blood or they themselves were bleeding or they had committed a grievous sin or they had leprosy 
see whatever it was, if you were considered defiled or unclean, you would have to take what we might consider today as a chalkboard, write it on your chest, what your ailment was, and you would walk through the streets as onlookers and passerbyers came near you, and you would declare for the whole world to hear, unclean, 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 by which everyone would respond by going the other side of the road and walking around the unclean person so that they themselves who believed that if they touched this unclean person would become defiled and unclean would not become unclean. This woman, her life was so transformed in a moment that she abandoned her purpose in that moment to accept a greater call. She ran back. She didn't walk. She didn't think through it. She ran back to the community that considered her unclean. They had cut off all ties from her. And she took the gospel right to them. She wasn't concerned about her reputation, church. Nicodemus, the religious leader, he came to Jesus in the dark of night because he was concerned about his reputation. This woman just knew that she had an encounter with Jesus that changed everything. And listen to what she does. Verse 29. Come and see. That should be the words on the lips of every one of us in this church right now. Don't take my word for what God is doing at Country Bible Church. You got to come and see it. You got to see how 32 kids could give their life to Jesus in one night. You got to see. Oh, by the way, quick math. In 10 months. At the life of this church, we have 135 names of people who have given their life to Jesus for the first time. In 10 months! Amen. 135 people have bowed their heart and bent their knee to declare Jesus as Lord of their life in this church for the last 10 months. And this is what God is doing. We shouldn't go out there and just randomly take it as, 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 as just a happenstance. We need to get out there with it on our lips and tell people, come and see you got to come and see the fastest talking pastor you ever done did see in your life. you got to come and see. He has a different sport code every week. you got to come and see. we got those, all kinds of changes happening in the church. you got to come and see a youth group that God is doing tremendous things in and a children's ministry that is blowing out of the water. you got to come and see a church that considers Houston to be our neighbors, the least of these, and we're going to get involved in Houston. you got to come and see a church that is doing things so different than it's ever been done before in our community that it's going to change everything. Come and see. If that is not on your lips, why not? If Jesus has changed your life, met you where you're at, and radically transformed you, why would you not share that with everyone? This woman, she doesn't go there systematically. She goes there and says very intentionally, come and see a man who told me everything I did. He spoke to my situation. He met me where I was at. He walked into my life. Could he possibly be the Messiah? It wasn't because she was doubting. It was because she was trying to pique their interest. She knew he was the Messiah. She's saying, could this guy really be the Messiah? Like, don't take my word for it. Come and see. She identified him as the Messiah. But Jesus, listen to this. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him to the rabbi to eat something. And Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. You guys don't get it. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. Then Jesus explained, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest. But I say, wake up and look around. 
The fields are already ripe for harvest. Church, we are driving through our beautiful state right now, surrounded by cornfields and soybeans. And Jesus gives an illustration that we in Nebraska should identify with better than anybody. And he's saying that the people who need him are like the harvest. Look around, he says. Wake up and look around. Look at your workplace. Look at home. Look in your schools, guys. Look in your communities. Look in your social events. Look in your activities. Look on Facebook. Look everywhere. Look high and low. The harvest is ripe. And he said, the harvesters are paid good wages, verse 36, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. You know the saying, one plants and another harvest. And it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant and others have already done the work and now you will get to gather the harvest. Father, that is my prayer that you give us favor in this community. May we gather the harvest. I pray an anointing on every one of you on every one of us, that you have the courage to go tell everybody, come and see, and that we reap the harvest that God has called us, that he's already prepared for us. That is my prayer, amen. Let's finish up, verse 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to start in their village and to stay. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have experienced it ourselves. Because you came to us and told us, we came to see it for ourselves, and now we've encountered Jesus ourselves. We've experienced Jesus ourselves, and now we believe, and now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. Church, I ask you to highlight some names of Jesus, okay? Some idea, identity of Jesus. When this woman starts with Jesus, she recognizes him as a, as a Jew. From a Jew, she addresses him in the formal sense and calls him sir. From sir, she recognizes he might be a prophet. From prophet, he might be the Messiah and now he has radically come to change the world. Do you see what happens? When you come into an encounter with Jesus, your view of Jesus is transformed and your relationship changes how you identify with Jesus. I'm going to say that again. When you come into a relationship with Jesus, not only does it change the way you view yourself and the way you view this world and the way you view God, but as you grow in your relationship with Jesus and you experience him for yourself, it changes everything about your life and how you identify with God. This morning, is God, is Jesus just a, a Jew to you? Or is Jesus maybe a, a sir, a good teacher? Maybe you think Jesus is a prophet. Or you even, you've heard the, the message and you believe that he's a Messiah. But has Jesus, have you allowed him to speak into your life and to step into your circumstance to become the savior of your world? I told you at the onset that today we weren't going to talk about a mission and vision because Jesus gave us the mission and vision to love God with every fiber of our being, love our neighbors, ourselves, and to go make disciples of all nations. I told you at the onset that we were going to talk about our existence and our identity, who we are and why we do what we do. Church, I want to share something with you. I want to share a picture with you of who we are and why we do what we do. At my church, we exist. At my church, our identity, we are a community where people encounter Jesus and their lives are changed forever. 
We are a church that at my church, we are a community that it, where people encounter Jesus and their marriages are restored. We are a church where people encounter Jesus and they're freed from addiction. We are a church where people encounter Jesus as a community and they are growing in their faith. We are a church, a community where people encounter Jesus and they're never the same again. This is why we do what we do. This is why we meet on Sunday mornings. This is why we have a staff. This is why we have a leadership team. This is why we run the programs that we run. This is why we do the things that we do with Houston and with our missions and with planting churches. This is why on September 17th, 2017, I am standing here before you today because I believe that we are called to be a church where we are a community where people encounter Jesus and their lives are changed forever. This is the hill that I'm willing to die on. I will I will not die on the hill about whether we should keep a mural in the children's wing or paint it gray. I will not die on the hill of whether we should have stairs at the front of the stage or no stairs. I will not die on a hill of how you become a member or whether you should become a member. And by the way, if you want to talk about membership, all I ask is you find it in the Bible and then we'll have a discussion about it. Because what I read in the Bible that says that if you are in Christ, you are a member of the body of Christ. Different conversation, different day. That is not a religion that I'm willing to die for. What I'm willing to die for, what I am here for, what I believe and what we are called to, what we are committed to as a leadership team, what we are committed to as a staff, is that we will be a community where people encounter Jesus and their lives are changed forever. Yes. That's it. This isn't a game to me. This isn't a mystery room where you have to come in and try to figure out what we're doing and where we're going. In fact, the next four weeks, we're going to take you through what we as a staff have, are calling our core four. There's a lot of values that we have here, a lot of things we love and that make us unique. But we've really narrowed it down to four things that we're going to be about, that every believer in our church will be about these four things. So this week, with the words on your lips, like this Samaritan woman who runs back into the community where she was shunned, ostracized, and excommunicated from, we should be so lucky to be used by God to go into our context, into our culture, into our community, through social media, through Facebook and Instagram, through the places of work that we have, through our relationships with others in the community. We should be so lucky to have the words on our lips. When they ask us what church you go to, you tell them and you tell them with pride. And when they say, what's your church about? What's your church like? Let me tell you, our church and my church, we are a community where people encounter Jesus and their lives are changed forever. Why do you do youth ministry? We do youth ministry because at my church, we believe that we're a community where kids are going to encounter Jesus and their lives are changed forever. Why do you do kids ministry? Because we believe that our church, our kids are going to encounter Jesus and their lives are changed forever. Why do you have marriage resources? Because we believe that at my church that when you encounter Jesus, your life's going to be changed forever. Why do you preach the messages you preach? Because at my church, we're a community where we believe you encounter Jesus and your life is going to be changed forever. Don't take my word for it. Come and see. I'm going to tell you a story I didn't tell any other service. I have the liberty to do that. And unless Chris Boswell shuts me off, I'm, I'm going to keep talking. Um, I met with a man last night who, who, who came in from Dallas, Dallas-Fort Worth area. He was intrigued by our church. He wanted to know what was going on at our church. And so I met him here at 7 o'clock last night. And uh, I had two people in our church that were here on site. One was, um, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, it was Steve Lorenz. He was here. He spent 11 hours yesterday painting our youth center, getting it ready for our students. Which, by the way, thank you for your contributions. Awesome. 
Steve's wife, Alicia, came by uh, because when I showed up, she said, why aren't you home yet? And she said, is Andrew there? And I just heard Steve say, yes, Andrew's there. She said, I'm on my way. In other words, I talked so much, he couldn't get away. <laughs> they came in at the same time that this man from Texas came in. And he wanted a tour of our facility. He wanted to, he's heard about our church, but he wanted to experience it. And so I walked him through the building. And I told him our story. I told him the story of 47 years, and then I told him the story of the last 10 months. And then I let Steve and Alicia tell it in their words. This man stood there at the back door. As I was walking away toward my office to continue to meet with him, he stopped and he pointed to Alicia and he said, I want you to tell your staff and your church that what you're experiencing are things of legends. This man is a, is a, he's a part of a large denomination, one of the largest denominations in the world. And he's a, he's a higher, he's a higher up. He's a big wig. He's a superintendent of a big denomination. And what he said is there are churches that will spend hundreds of years that he knows churches that spend three years. And if they grow by three people, they're ecstatic. He said, I've heard about revivals, but what you're experiencing is a revival. It's an amazing miraculous work of God. And he said, I'm jealous. I know I shouldn't be, but I'm a little jealous that you get to be a part of it. And if I can do anything to help you guys with your mission, and if I can help you guys do anything with your identity, if I can help you get where you feel God's calling you to go, I'm all in. He said, you make sure your people know that what they're experiencing is special. Those are not my words. You can go talk to Alicia and Steve. They stood right there. I was in the hallway halfway to my office. And then he came in with tears and reiterated to me, church, you are a special, this, the, 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 you are, what God is doing through us is special. This is, a, this is an amazing time, an amazing season to be involved in the ministry and the life of this community and this church. So I'm inviting you in to be a church, not a building. I'm inviting you in to be a church, not a religion. I'm inviting you to come with me and to go tell everybody, you gotta come and see that at our church, we exist, our identity. We, 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 we're a community where people encounter Jesus and their lives are changed forever. And church, mark my words, final thing I'll say, and then Alex, I promise, you can start, start singing over me if I keep talking. <laughs> final thing. If we ever cease to be about this, a community where people encounter Jesus and they experience life change, two things. I believe we will cease to be a church and I will no longer be your pastor. I can do nothing else but live and die by this commitment. And this is what our church is. Amen. At your church, you are a community where people encounter Jesus and their lives are changed forever. So this morning, we're gonna celebrate life change. Right, Pastor Alex? We're gonna celebrate life change by singing together. Let's stand and pray and sing. Father, thank you. Lord, thank you for this church's um, oh, graciousness and willingness to forgive me for preaching long. Well, thank you, Lord, that you have done a tremendous work here in this place. And God, we invite you to continue to do it. And I pray that today we would be more than hearers of your word, but we would be doers. Be it so, Lord Jesus. Be it so.